0: Happy New Year, thank you for braving both the cold and also the post-holiday events uh, to be here with us this morning to discuss cytopenias. There we go. These are our objectives. So this to start is just a general overview of hematopoiesis. And obviously we're not going to go through all the details on this slide, and but just to point out a few highlights that The process starts with a multipotent hematopoietic stem cell and then there's early differentiation within the bone marrow into common myeloid progenitor cells and common lymphoid progenitor cells. These then undergo further differentiation within the bone marrow and one important highlight to note here is just that the common lymphoid progenitor cell, which is one of the earliest differentiations, over here on the right differentiates only into the lymphocytes, the T and B lymphocytes and plasma cells, and then also the natural killer cells, whereas all of the other types of cells that are found in the peripheral blood come from the common myeloid progenitor cells over on the left-hand side of the screen, (coughs) including the uh, neutrophils and the other white blood cells. And the majority of this differentiation occurs within the bone marrow, and it's the final products that are typically found in the peripheral blood. And then some of these also will move into the, into the tissues. But just to note that you find immature cells, not mature cells, within the peripheral blood, and that's a sign that there is potentially another process that's occurring that's driving that if that's not a normal process. And when we think about cytopenias in the context of the peripheral blood, which is decreased in some type of blood cell within the peripheral blood,
1: <coughs>
0: excuse me, we're typically discussing anemia of the erythrocytes decrease in platelets or thrombocytes, neutropenia, and lymphopenia. And again, just to note that those two both fall under the category of leukopenia. Both come from different initial progenitors themselves. So the first question uh, is really to always make sure whether something is truly abnormal. And I think this is one of those We get very focused on yellow, and we get very anxious about yellow. But just a reminder that the computer is not actually smarter than we are, and Quest is not smarter than we are. And um, to always make sure there's lots of variability in terms of what actually is a normal reference range, particularly in pediatrics, because a lot of these values depend a lot on age. Certainly, they can depend on gender. There's uh, some can depend on ethnicity or race. There's a variety of factors that can go into what actually is a normal value. So just to always before. The question of even who to call is whether or not anybody needs to be called and if this is actually abnormal or not. So this is just an example of a 14-month-old male who had, this was his um, CBC result from Quest, and as you can see, there's this yellow um, with a little down arrow on his hemoglobin of 11.2. And as you can see, the normal range that Quest is reporting here is 11.3 to 14.1. But if you go to look at a Harriet Lane handbook, you can see that for his age range, The average hemoglobin level is 12, but the two standard deviations below the mean is 10.5, and so this would actually not necessarily be an abnormal result that you would need to do anything about for this patient. And this is important for a lot of different reasons. Obviously, the main one being that if you start to talk about abnormal lab results and the blood cell counts, I think that's a significant cause of patient and parental concern. And then if you then need to do things about that, whether it's referral to specialists, return visits to the lab, you are talking about missed school, missed work for follow-up appointments, and then just appropriate use of medical resources. So an actual CBC is not all that expensive. Uh, there's a variety of different, I can say I don't know exactly what ours typical one is here at the hospital, but an average would be about 20 to $30 for a CBC. And that in itself is not a huge amount of money, but if you factor in potentially multiple of those visits to a specialist, that cost can can increase, and also just since we're all stewards of the healthcare resources in general, thinking about access to care and whether or not that patient appointment would potentially be better served for another patient. So just always remember to use references for that. But when you are faced with a patient that has a cytopenia, obviously there's just sort of a general approach and things to consider, which is which cell lines are affected and also how many cell lines are affected. Is it a single cell line or is it multiple cell lines? Whether or not it's a problem with production or a problem with destruction, whether it seems to be a chronic process or an acute process, and whether there seem to be any other symptoms or red flags that might alert you that there is something else going on, that the cytopenia might in fact be secondary to another process. And we're going to discuss some of these red flags as we go through a series of cases this morning. Sorry. So our first case is an 18 year old Caucasian female who presented to her pediatrician uh, with multiple near syncope episodes. She had been working outdoors at a summer camp all summer um, and she presented in, in the late summer, early fall. And so initially she thought that these episodes were just due to the heat associated with working outdoors at a summer camp. But she saw her pediatrician and they did laboratory studies who found a CBC that had a hemoglobin of nine and otherwise normal cell lines. So she was subsequently referred to an emergency department for repeated testing, and the repeat tests showed a hemoglobin of 7.1, and again, other cell lines being normal. So in thinking about what studies can help you, again, figure out what the etiology of this anemia might be. Again, it's helpful to go back to that, whether this is a problem with production, destruction, how many cell lines are affected, and thinking about what tests could potentially be helpful. Any takers on what the first, the two, According to Natalie, most important tests would be? <laughs> <laughs> reticulous count. You're not a liar. <laughs> <you're laughs> <an laughs> <a laughs> <parent>. Yeah, <laughs> good job. So, reticulous site count being um, one of the most important tests, and then also the MCB. So the approach to anemia, there's a, a few different pathways. I think this is one that's commonly seen and commonly talked about, which is actually that you have an. Uh, a CBC that shows anemia, and then the next differentiation in terms of a pathway and figuring out what the etiology of that might be is to look at the MC val- MCV values, which is the mean corpuscular volume, or the average size of the red blood cells, and then to determine what the secondary studies and follow-up studies would be based on that. But another approach is to start with your reticulocyte count, to, actually, to base your further studies and your further differentiation off of the reticulocyte count. And as you can see, this is looking at whether your reticulocyte index is less than 2.5 or greater than or equal to 2.5, and then doing subsequent tests based on on that. So for our patient, and as you can see, um, in both of these, the reticulocyte count and the MCV are both important. It's just sort of a matter of which one you use to start your initial deviations in the pathway, and then you get into other tests looking for at iron studies, at hemolysis, labs and a variety of other studies. So for our patient, her reticulocyte count was 254.3, which was 8.9% reticulocytes. And it's normal to have about 1% of reticulocytes in the peripheral blood, although the absolute number is also important, um, not just the percentage. For her, her red blood, in, uh, red blood cell indices showed that her initial MCV was actually 126, which we'll get back to in a minute. Her peripheral smear showed anemia, polychromasia, reticulocytosis, and lymphopenia. As I said, iron studies are often helpful, but in this case, that didn't seem to be as helpful. And her hemolysis screen showed a Coombs test, a direct Coombs test that was positive, um, but she did have normal LDH and bilirubin levels. And so, again, if you use this pathway, in terms of looking at her quite elevated reticulocyte count, then you've broken up, you take this pathway, with the elevated reticulocyte count and you're thinking about whether this could potentially be the result of hemolysis or hemorrhage, and thinking about blood loss, um, hemolysis, and some of the hemoglobinopathies and other immune destruction.
1: <clears throat>
0: so for this patient, the based on the fact that she had the elevated reticulocyte count and had a positive Coombs screen, although her LDH and bilirubin were normal, she was diagnosed with the likely autoimmune hemolytic anemia. <clears throat> Uh, Excuse me. So, autoimmune hemolytic anemia is an anemia that's associated with an elevation of reticulocyte count because your bone marrow is working, you're having peripheral destruction of red cells, (coughs) and often is associated with elevated LDH and bilirubin and sometimes a decreased haptoglobin due to the hemolysis. And then you will frequently see the positive um, direct antiglobulin test or the Coombs test (coughs) um, be positive in that case. This is just one other thing to note on this slide is that, as I said, I think Natalie feels like prefers this pathway, speaking for a or thinking a lot about the reticulocyte count and making sure that that's an initial part of the workup as well. Because this patient's MCV was 126, which if you actually looked at a, the MCV-based pathway would not necessarily put you into the hemolytic um, anemia pathway because that is typically, um, has a normal MCV count. But reticulocytes themselves are actually have a larger volume, so if you have a higher proportion of reticulocyte counts, that potentially could cause you to have an increased MCV if you're just looking at the average number. <clears throat> and so um, this is just a, a brief what the direct Coombs test is, or the, as I said, the direct antiglobulin test, which is the one more frequently used than the indirect, which is in the bottom portion. And so the direct antiglobulin test is you essentially take blood sample from the patient who has an hemolytic anemia, and the process of that the patient will have antibodies attached to the red blood cell surface that are that are um, causing the hemolysis. So those red blood cells are are washed and then are incubated with the same uh, the anti uh, human antibodies so like the anti IgG and and the antibodies that are causing the hemolysis, and then if those antibodies will then basically agglutinate and form links between each other, forming links between the red blood cells, and bind to one another, and that will cause the, uh, the sedimentation that's the positive test result for the direct antiglobulin test. As I said, the indirect antiglobulin test is really not as helpful for autoimmune hemolytic anemia, but what that is is when you have antibodies actually in the serum, and so you take the serum of the, of the patient, you put in normal red blood cells, and then you put in, um, and then the antibodies attach to the red blood cells and cause the sorry, then you put in the anti-human immunoglobulins that, that cause those to bind, um, and then that causes the, the agglutination and the, and the sedimentation that results in a positive test. But this is, I think, more how they um, do things related to blood, blood type um, testing, but not, not necessarily as important for autoimmune hemolytic anemia. <clears throat> and the Um, Antibodies that are frequently found on the sources of red blood cells when you have a hemolytic anemia is, as I said, an anti-IgG, which, and also you can have an antibody to some complement components, such as anti-C3. And having an anti-IgG on uh, your red blood cells is often often an indication that at least some amount of hemolysis is occurring. And in our patient, subsequent testing, uh, when she was here, did show that she had both a positive anti-IgG and anti-C3. And this is just a, a smear of what you might see. So I don't know if it's a little bit hard to see on the, out there on the screen, but um, A, you can see the green arrows on A, those are reticulocytes. And basically, as I said, they are larger cells. They're an immature step of the red blood cell pathway. They have um, sort of a reticular or mesh-like matrix of the ribosomal RNA that you can see on certain stains. And it's an indication that that those are immature red blood cells that are in the peripheral blood. Jumping to D, D is a a nucleated red blood cell, which is again, also an immature red blood cell that actually comes before the reticulocyte. And again, should not be found in the peripheral blood, should really be only found in the bone marrow. And so those two can be indications that your bone marrow is working and trying to churn out more blood cells because it's it's sensing the anemia. Um, And so you get the immature cells in the periphery. Also on the screen are in in B, sort of the purple arrow, are um, the spherocytes which you see in hemolytic anemia. And then C here with the red arrows down towards the bottom are um, schistocytes that you often can see. Um, They happen when the the sort of red blood cell has a shearing and gets deformed. And that's suggestive of a microangiopathic process. So those two are kind of changes that can occur with the mature red blood cell and the other two are are findings of immature red blood cells in the periphery. So there are different causes of hemolytic anemia in children. Um, There are intrinsic red blood cell defects such as the hemoglobinopathies and other membrane defects. and Then there are extrinsic processes under which the autoimmune hemolytic anemia falls. There are also other findings, such as hypersplenisms, systemic disease, different drugs and toxins, and then the microangiopathies. Um, Mechanical damage, probably don't see a lot, also in pediatrics, but from artificial heart valves. So these are the different causes of hemolytic anemia um, that you need to consider when you have a patient that seems to be presenting with this. So for our patient, she was initially started on a prednisone taper. Um, This is all before she had arrived for care here at Connecticut Children's. And did have improvement in her hemoglobin hematocrit indices. However, upon taper of the prednisone, she started to have worsening symptoms again. She was actually seen, interestingly, by an adult hematologist who had recommended a splenectomy. um, But the surgeon that she had been referred to didn't think that that sounded like the most appropriate next step for an 18-year-old. And so she was then referred to Connecticut Children's Hematology. And at that point, she had had a few other symptoms as well that had come. She had extreme fatigue. She was sleeping in excess of 13 hours overnight. She was not feeling rested in the morning. She was complaining of arthralgias diffusely throughout her joints, upper and lower extremities, uh, particularly her knees, her ankles, and her wrists. The parents had noticed that she was limping. She reported that she felt elderly, kind of stiff and shuffling in the morning. Her symptoms were worse in the morning and improved slightly throughout the day, so signs as as a rheumatologist that we sort of do perk up at in terms of the worsening symptoms in the morning, having it be a predominant stiffness as opposed to just complaints of pain in the limping as being potentially concerning factors. She was having daily headaches and she actually had not had any menses for about six months. So these raised um, some concerns and um, she had additional lab testing that was done here at that time that showed Again, continued hemoglobin, although her hemoglobin was only 9.3, so not necessarily as low as you might expect for someone with such extreme fatigue as a result directly of the anemia. At this point, you can see her MCV has normalized at 100. She had, if you can see down here, actually decreased um, absolute lymphocyte count of 890. She had elevated reticulocyte count of 254, again, with 8.9% and her uh, sedimentation rate was actually elevated at 38. Now you can have some elevation of your ESR just as a result of having anemia, but that would be higher than you would typically expect for just being related to her anemia. So there are obviously some red flags um, in this case that potentially something might be happening other than just an anemia. They sort of mentioned a few of them already, but the fatigue being out of proportion to her anemia, and this is again after she'd already had some initial treatment and had been treated with prednisone already. Her joint pains, and specifically the swelling, the morning stiffness, the symptoms being better later in the day, noticing (coughs) limping, those are all things that that are concerning for a potential inflammatory condition going on within her joints. Um, She had subsequently actually developed a photosensitive rash. And also the lack of menses is something that can be seen if you have an ongoing inflammatory disorder as well. In terms of her laboratory studies, we obviously know that she had the anemia. She had the elevated reticulocyte count. She also had a lymphopenia, which you would not necessarily be expected to see to that degree, um, an isolated lymphopenia just with an autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And she also had, as I said, the ESR that was elevated out of proportion to just having an anemia. So she was referred to rheumatology, and I'm sorry, as I said, she'd had an interim development of a photosensitive rash. So we did additional testing based on those complaints that she had, and these showed that she had a positive ANA, a positive double-stranded DNA, some mild elevation of her SSA and SSB, or the Roan-Law antigens, an elevated anti-Smith and RMP antigen, and also low C3 and C4. Additionally, she had positive... Um, antiphospholipid antibody testing with anticardiolipin antibodies, a positive lupus anticoagulant, and a positive beta 2 glycoprotein. <clears throat> so her diagnosis ended up being um, systemic lupus erythematosus. <clears throat> What's interesting about this is that actually patients who have autoimmune hemolytic anemia as part of their presentation of lupus will frequently have elevated anticardiolipin um, and lupus anticoagulant antibodies and, and can more frequently have a component of antiphospholipid syndrome as a as a part of this. Also just of note to remember that there was a variety of red flags that made us concerned for this. So this is not a suggestion to order an ANA on every patient that has anemia, um, but that there are clearly some features of her presentation that were abnormal. So just to go briefly into some of the other hematologic manifestations of lupus, because basically every cell line can be affected in this disease. Anemia can be seen in over 50% of patients with lupus, Um, and if you see at the table on the right, um, table one has a variety of different causes of anemia that can be seen. Anemia of chronic disease is the most common. Um, Anemia of chronic disease is basically a diagnosis of exclusion. There isn't hemolysis, there's not something else, there's not another reason that you can can identify that the patient has anemia. Um, Anemia of chronic disease is typically a normocytic, normochromic anemia with a low reticulocyte count. And I think there's a variety of different mechanisms of how this can occur, Um, but there's um, potentially increased hepcidin, which can cause a decreased incorporation of iron into the developing red blood cells. There also can be some decreased um, response of the red blood cells to um, erythropoietin, um, and also actual decreased production of erythropoietin due to the inflammatory cytokines, and potentially also some component of renal disease that can sometimes occur in these patients. Hemolytic anemia, True hemolytic anemia is really seen in about five to 10% of cases. And these are due to the anti-erythrocyte antibodies. Um, Like I said, you can find the anti-IgG. Anti-C3 is not necessarily specific for hemolytic anemia, but um, anti-IgG can be more telling. And again, potentially the anti-cardiolipin antibodies might contribute to this as well. And that's seen in about five to 10% of cases, so not overly common. Leukopenia, general leukopenia can be seen in over 50% of patients. And in up to 75% of lupus patients, this can be a selective lymphopenia, which does correlate often with disease activity. And it's something that we very frequently see. <clears throat> it's typically a deficiency of the T regulatory cells. Um, and about, um, as I said, it's, it's very common. You can also get um, neutropenia in patients with, um, with lupus actually not as commonly associated with the actual disease activity, and it can be frequently associated with um, medications or other, um, other factors, infection and other factors that go along with that. Um, <clears throat> and about 20% of patients will have um, a uh, leukopenia lower than 1,000. Thrombocytopenia is something else that can occur in lupus. Um, very mild thrombocytopenia is very common, so if you have a um, counts of less than like 150, that's extremely common. Um, severe thrombocytopenia, so less than 50,000 is uncommon. Um, as you can see different actual um, percentages, but that in itself is, is, is uncommon. and when you have severe thrombocytopenia, it's most often a, a related essentially immune mediated like ITP immune mediated destruction. Um, Often, interestingly, the thrombocytopenia can be accompanied by an autoimmune hemolytic <coughs> anemia if you have it in patients with lupus, so like an Evans syndrome, um, where you have those two together. Um, and you can also sometimes just have consumption of thrombocytopenia, particularly if um, you have any component of antiphospholipid syndrome or a microangiopathic um, process that's occurring with this. You can also sometimes see pancytopenia, and I think when you see that, it can be... It just in general, can be very concerning that there is more of a systemic process going on. So one thing that we would certainly consider in a patient with lupus is whether they have a component of macrophage activation <coughs> syndrome or H- um, MAS, um, which is also in hematology, world, um, hemato- uh, eh, hematophagocytosis, lymphohistiocytosis. sorry, <laughs> I'm not saying that well this morning, um, or HLH. And I think you can also see this with DIC and with severe sepsis, and when you see pancytopenia, it's definitely a cause for pretty significant concern. <clears throat> so
1: Natalie will now discuss Hi guys. Uh, so we're gonna keep going with the, the cases here. Um, So the second case is a 15-year-old black male who presents to his primary care provider for routine health maintenance and really has no concerns. But as part of routine health maintenance, he gets some surveillance lab testing performed and comes back with the following results. His white blood cell count is 4.5 and his absolute neutrophil count is uh, 1,214. So I'm not going to be as kind as Heather, and I'm going to make you guys participate, because otherwise I feel like it's really boring for everyone. And there's like no one here, so you don't have to be embarrassed. So I'll start off easy. (laughs) Are these normal, high, or low? All right. Oh, I love it. Good, perfect. That's what I was hoping for. So some people think they're normal, and some people think that they're low. So I guess my first question is, in terms of fleshing this out, what else do you want to know about this kid? Well, yeah, that's a great first question. And let me tell you, that's a question I have all the time. (laughs) But I do think frequently teenagers get some surveillance stuff that includes like cholesterol screening and stuff like that. And I feel like when people order labs, they always order a CBC. So um, that actually I think is, um, I would love for that to be a take home point, except I'm not a general pediatrician and don't know the literature well enough. But I do think we do far more lab testing than is necessary. But this happens, I promise. We get these consults multiple times a week. So we've got these results. What do you want to know about the kid now that you're, you have these lab values? Or maybe that you already knew about the kid. Does anyone want to take a history? Yeah, is he healthy, right? So what's going on? So this kid, you know, is there um, any history of recent infection? Does this kid have frequent infections? Is he on any medications? Is, are there any chronic medical conditions? Is there any family history of anything? And the answer to all of these questions is no. This is a perfectly, perfectly healthy young man. He is doing well in school, active in sports. Um, So my next question is what do you want to do? Nothing. Okay, so for those of you who said normal, I love that answer, you want to do nothing. I'm telling you that is not, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but that is not what I think the majority of the people in the community would do because we get these consults all the time. So for those of you who said they were low, what would you do? Oh sorry, so that's a great question. The rest of the CBC was totally normal. Great question. Um, So I can tell you what happens all the time because we get these consults is that people send this patient back to the lab. So they said they're low, Quest said they were low, they must be low, go back to the lab. So the kid goes back to the lab and gets results that look pretty similar to the last ones with a white count of 4.8 and an ANC of 1156 and his other cell lines remain normal. So anyone have any idea what's going on in this kid? Are you worried? Are you not? Great, so I've heard people know the answer, which is awesome. So the diagnosis here is benign ethnic neutropenia. Um, so in the interest of ins- like instilling a little bit of science into Grand Rounds here, I am actually going to show you some figures from some papers to help you understand this phenomenon a little bit better so just to prove to you that this is a real thing this is a paper from the Annals of Internal Medicine containing data from the NHANES survey, which hopefully most of you have heard about it's the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, where they have thousands of patients and not only do they get survey data, but they also have physical exam um, and lab data on a lot of patients, and what I want to draw your attention to are those two little boxes that I circled for you here, so the red one and the white one. This is just comparing blacks to whites, and this is average neutrophil count. So again, average. Don't pay attention to the actual numbers, pay attention to the difference. So what you can see is that in each column here, in each um, age group and each gender group, you're going to see that blacks, on average, have lower neutrophil counts compared to whites. Um, and what's even more interesting is we actually understand in many cases why this happens. Um, So this is a figure from um, a paper that was published in the British Journal of Hematology in 2009 um, talking about a polymorphism in the Duffy antigen, which is a red blood cell antigen, and what we know is that actually having this particular phenotype protects you against getting malaria. So you can imagine in parts of the world that sounds like a great thing, Um, but what we've also proven is that those patients have lower neutrophil counts? So to help you interpret this um, sort of quickly, what I want you to see is that this color that actually in the paper is purple, but seems to be projecting pink here, these columns represent the patients with that particular phenotype, that genetic um, uh, makeup and that um, polymorphism in the Duffy image and what you can hopefully see is that those colored columns are lower than the blue columns, meaning that those patients with that phenotype all have on average lower neutrophil counts. What I also wanna draw your attention to here is the white people in this study, because what you can see is none of them have that phenotype, right? So we actually understand. This doesn't account for all of the variability, but for a good percentage of it, we actually understand why. So what's the deal with benign ethnic neutropenia? Does it matter? Do we care? And the answer, answer is not that we don't care, but that it's not a diagnosis that's clinically significant. So these patients have been studied over time and have absolutely no increased risk of infection. We've also done bone marrows on a lot of them and found out that they, underlying this, have a completely normal bone marrow, so trilineage hematopoiesis. And this has also been reported in several other ethnic groups, and I listed some of them here. Probably the other ethnic groups that we see this in most frequently are the Middle Eastern population, so a lot of the Arab patients we get referrals with this. So as a general guideline for you guys who are getting back your surveillance results either in the community or in your other subspecialties, when you're taking this into consideration, in general, I sort of use a cutoff of 1,000 when I think about these patients in terms of calling them neutropenic. Although if you look in the literature, um, a lot of people use a cutoff of 800. So again, don't just blindly use reference ranges from any outpatient lab. You really have to think about the clinical context of your patients. So how does that compare to everyone else? So just as a reminder, On the right here, I just wanted to include general classifications of neutropenia. Um, So roughly anything from 1,000 to 1,500 is considered mild neutropenia. Anything between 500 and 1,000 for ANC is considered moderate and anything less than 500 is severe, although truthfully the rate of infections doesn't really rise until you're under 200. Um, But again, keep this into consideration because we very frequently see lab slips that come from Quest and other outpatient labs with ANCs of 1700 flagged as low. Um, And you really need to take that into clinical context. Uh, So in the interest of being thorough, I just wanted to include on the left some other um, etiologies of benign neutropenias that we see frequently and that probably you guys see frequently as well. So you have chronic benign or autoimmune, You can have transient infectious suppression. We get referrals for this all the time. Um, This is a marrow suppression that occurs most commonly after viral illnesses and really can last for weeks. And what frequently happens is you guys refer them to us and by the time they get to us and get an appointment and get their CBC done, it's resolved. Um, And the worst thing you could do for these patients who again are otherwise well and have recently had a well-documented viral illness is check again too soon. Sending that kid back to the lab three days later, it's still gonna be low. So you want to let enough time pass if you really feel compelled to check another value. Um, And then drug-induced can be benign. We see it a lot with um, psych medications and things like that. And in these cases, you really have to weigh the benefits um, and the risks to these patients and often the benefits of their medications outweigh the risks of the mild neutropenia they get. Now that's to a point because you can have some medications that cause severe and dangerous um, leukopenias and neutropenias so uh, that's why it's important and all of our site colleagues do get regular um, labs on patients who are at risk for having these types of drug complications develop. Um, we're probably a little bit overprotective of, actually we're definitely overprotective of these patients with um, neutropenias that occur um, in what we would consider to be the more benign settings. So, um, And I think that this occurs because a lot of these things are diagnoses of exclusion. It's not like I can do a test to prove to you that this is chronic benign neutropenia. Um, And because our patients are often very young, so they may not have had a lot of time to sort of prove themselves that they're not going to have a lot of infections. If you've got a 16-year-old who shows up, fine. They've lived 16 years, like our patient in the story, never had any significant infections, like, don't worry about that kid. But the kid who is seven months old, maybe they just haven't had enough time to show you yet. Um, So, we do um, put in place fever precautions for patients who've had a history of severe So remember, severe neutropenia, not the kid with an ANC of 1,000 necessarily, um, asking that they be evaluated in the setting of fevers. So what are red flags uh, for neutropenic patients? Frequent infections, chronic infections, unusual or severe infections, other symptoms that go along with it, patients with recurrent fevers, patients with stomatitis, Um, patients with issues with their growth, other systemic symptoms. Again, thinking back to the case that Heather presented that was a patient that she and I actually both cared for, um, it was clear that it wasn't just the anemia that was the issue and the same goes for other cell lines here, looking for other um, signs that there might be something bigger going on. Questions about neutropenia? All right, let's talk about platelets. I have a two-year-old female who presents to primary care with sudden onset of bruising. What else do you guys want to know? I'm gonna pick on my husband if people don't <laughs> if people don't start talking. <laughs> and that's not really fair, so save Eric. Recent illness. Great, recent illness. Awesome. Pattern of bruising. What's that? Pattern of bruising. Pattern of bruising, great. Anything? Platelet count, great, you're skipping ahead, but yes. (laughs) So what do we wanna know? So this kid actually had um, some sort of GI illness about a week and a half ago. Um, You wanna know other bleeding symptoms, which I don't know that I heard anyone say. So has this little lady been also having nosebleeds, blood in her urine, you know, anything else that might be more concerning. And hopefully you wanna examine her too, which I think is what Dr. Lappick was getting at with thinking about the pattern. So, when you examine her, you see diffuse petechiae scattered on her neck, trunk, back, extremities. Lots of small bruises, mostly on the lower extremities, where you can imagine they're in points of contact. Um, so, to the answer of what you want to do, it sounds like Dr. Young wants to get a platelet count. Um, so let's do that for him, and it's 20,000. Before you had that result, would you guys have just sent off a platelet count, or would people have sent other labs with it?
0: Sent
1: so a CBC. Yep, yeah. full CBC. What else? Yeah. Urine, maybe. Especially with low great blood pressure, I think thinking about bruising in lower extremities, I think it's important to consider your differential. I'm oh, glad. I'm oh. glad. Coags. Okay, so I was hoping someone would say that. I personally would not necessarily send coags in this patient, right? Um, so PT and PTT are basically screening tests for factor deficiencies: factor eight, factor nine, factor eleven, right? So, first of all, factor deficiencies, think about if any of you have ever taken care of a patient with hemophilia, which is a factor 8 deficiency, a patient who would have a prolonged PTT. Is this how they present? No, they have hemarthrosis. They don't present with petechiae. So it's a very different pattern of bleeding that you see in patients with factor deficiencies. And the other thing is that they're not usually acquired, right? When you have these conditions, in children, again, I'm not talking about adults with lots of comorbidities. In children, these things are acquired. You don't get a factor 8 deficiency suddenly at age 2 or 5 or 10. right? Um, So in patients who have intact hepatic function, it would be really unusual for someone to all of a sudden acquire a factor deficiency. So unless you're worried that this kid is sicker and might have DIC or something like that, um, I wouldn't do a PT and PTT, although that's what everyone always does. So what's the diagnosis? ITP. ITP, great. Now, question is, what do you want to do with this 2-year-old with a platelet count of 20,000? So you want to re- Okay, so those of you who are not hematologists want to refer to us, fine, great. Pretend you're the hematologist now. What do you want to do? Or pretend that you live somewhere in the middle of nowhere where there's no hematologist anywhere within 3 hours of your practice. Okay, show of hands who wants to treat this patient. You guys are so good. So I would observe this patient. So this is a patient, all right? So I would not treat this patient. We are with these, um, with ITP really trying to move away from using numbers to guide our treatment here. So it used to be that, oh, if the platelet count was less than 20,000, you treated. And then people said if the platelet count was less than 10,000, you treated. And really now we try to take the patient and put them in clinical context and think about what their real risk is. And at the end of the day, the risk of life-threatening bleeding in patients with ITP is extraordinarily low uh, in the absence of trauma. And that it's much better to actually look at their bleeding symptomatology to help you assess for that risk. So what if this patient had nosebleeds or something else? This for me is what would change the clinical context of this patient. So I'm also including something from a paper here. This is published in the Journal of Pediatrics by Buchanan and Adix back in 2002 and provides a very convenient grading scale for the bleeding symptoms in patients with ITP. And I don't want you to be able to read or assess that whole thing, but the gist of it is that unless someone has what we would consider grade three or moderate bleeding, We try not to treat them. Obviously, there are outliers to that. You've got the five-year-old autistic kid who smashes his head against walls all day. That might be someone who is a little bit riskier, but in someone who's otherwise well and has acute ITP and isn't trying to play tackle football and things like that, we really try to hold off. Even though our treatments are not particularly harmful, um, you try to spare people if you can. So what buys you a grade three designation on this is overt mucosal bleeding. So the patient who has bruises and petechiae, no matter how bad, is different from the patient who has oral bleeding, nosebleeds, other situations. And that would push most of us to treat. So our first line treatments for acute ITP are still steroids and IVIG. And depending on which institution you go to, you may find a trend towards one versus the other. But really, in terms of efficacy, they are equivalent. Now, one other thing that I wanted to point out here is that when we get back to the sort of question we're trying to answer here with this Grand Rounds is when do you need to call us? So a lot of you wanted to call us, and that's great. But the truth is that in a patient who is not bleeding, um, it is perfectly reasonable for someone who has the comfort level to manage these patients on their own. Obviously, we're happy to take any of them and happy to manage these patients, and we do it all the time. But again, you know, you guys have the luxury of being in a community where you have hematologists easily at your disposal. For a patient who's not bleeding and does not have a severely low platelet count it is perfectly reasonable to monitor those patients on your own, and it's a matter of personal preference. Um, So I wanted to take this time, again, to give you guys some newer data uh, and also inform you a little bit about some agents that you might see us using more and more in these patients. Um, So this is a little um, schematic here of how we stimulate um, platelet growth in our bodies. So the normal hormone here, thrombopoetin, uh, is produced in the liver and in the kidneys. And and it comes and works through our JAK-STAT and MAP kinase pathway to stimulate platelet growth. Okay? And what we've been able to do in the last decade, which was great, is simulate this normal process. So in 2008, FDA approved this drug here, Romiplostim, which you guys may also know as Nplate. This is a weekly subcutaneous injection that is basically a, um, an agonist of your thrombopoietin receptor and can lead to increased platelet counts. Now, it's still being investigated for use in pediatric patients, at least with respect to the official FDA approval, but what I can tell you is that it is being used um, widely, including in some patients that we treat uh, treat in our patients. But um, you know the downside of this, even though it works really well, is that patients have to come in once a week for an injection and get platelet counts once a week because we use that to gauge Um, how often we give it and what dose we give of the medication. Um, That's in contrast to this other medication over here, Ultrombapag, which is also known as Promacta. And this was also approved um, by the FDA in 2008 for use in adults. And what's even more exciting about this is that the FDA approval was extended to pediatric patients in 2015. And this is a daily oral medication with very few side effects. Um, So what we have had in the past for sort of our third, fourth, fifth-line therapies for um, ITP, which included a whole bunch of other immunomodulators, 6MP, rituximab, you guys probably, if you fought, had any chronic patients in your practice, saw us using a lot of these different things. These medications have really jumped the line um, because of their safety profile and effectiveness in treating ITP, and who knows? At the moment, we're still using steroids and IVIG as first-line therapies, but it may be moving forward that these, um, these agents gain favor um, for that use as well. All right, last case. Um, So I have a four-year-old male who presents to primary care with a diffuse rash, fatigue, pallor, and easy bruising. What else do you guys want to know? Eileen, this is your patient. (laughs) No. (laughs) These are all real patients, by the way. Um, So first, you want to take your history, right? This is a kid who was quote-unquote sick a lot, had missed 35 days of school in the preceding six months. You want to examine him. On exam, he had pretty significant hepatosplenomegaly. So this was, again, some red flags that triggered further evaluation. A CBC was obtained, which showed this. So this is for real neutropenia, right? This patient is leukopenic with a white count of 2.7 and an ANC that definitely falls in the severe range, 170. We have a mild anemia with a hemoglobin of 10.8 and a severe thrombocytopenia with platelet count of um, 8,000. So, let's contrast this to our prior case where we had a two-year-old who had also bruising, right? Presented with bruising. What's different about this case? He's,
0: He's Ill, Ill
1: and he is. has leukopenia yeah. There we go, great. So, systemic symptoms. This is a kid who's not well. This is a kid, I mean, putting it in the most basic terms, sick, not sick, right? This is a kid who seems sick. This is a kid who has abnormalities on physical exam other than just the bruising, and abnormalities in um, multiple cell lines as well. So this is, I can tell you just to fast forward here, the diagnosis in this patient ended up being autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome or ALPS. And for those of you who don't remember what it is, I will remind you. On the right here is a schematic where you can see that normally our cells go through this um, process of programmed cell death or apoptosis. And in our lymphocytes, this is how this process is gated. You have this fast receptor. Your fast ligand binds it and stimulates this whole cascade of events that eventually leads to apoptosis. In ALPS, what you have is a mutated fast receptor that cannot bind to its fast ligand and hence cannot um, lead to apoptosis. And what you end up with is lymphoproliferation. So the clinical findings in these patients are lymphoproliferative disease. They can also have autoimmunity, typically cytopenias. And they're also, as you can imagine with lymphoprol- lymphoproliferation, are at increased risk of lymphoma. Um, this is actually the flow cytometry from this patient. The way we diagnose this is by looking for double negative T cells. So what you can see here is in addition to the pancytopenia and lymph- marked lymphopenia, again, hallmarks of this disease, um, th- there were 4.2% double negative, which refers to no CD4 and no CD8 um, T lymphocytes. Uh, So again, this patient, I won't go into a lot of detail, but this patient ended up being a lot more complicated than our other thrombocytopenia patient who had thrombocytopenia for a few weeks that resolved on its own. So what do you do when you have abnormalities in multiple cell lines as evidenced by this last case? You definitely want to have a higher index of suspicion for systemic diseases. That being said, it can absolutely still be a benign process. And I do use benign sort of with air quotes here, because someone could be really sick. We get a lot of inpatient consults for cytopenias in these patients who are septic in the ICU, really, really sick, um, and can definitely get pancytopenia from that. So clearly those patients are not particularly well, but they do not have a primary hematologic process, and that's very different in terms of thinking about how we go about treating it. Um, When you have abnormalities in multiple cell lines, it could still be a question of destruction versus decreased production. So you could still have what we term Evans syndrome, as Heather already referred to, which is where you have more than one autoimmune cytopenia. It could be any combination uh, of those. Or you could have problems with decreased production. So bone marrow failure syndromes like severe aplastic anemia, Fanconi uh, anemia, and the list goes on. And then you could, um, still, you could also have problems with bone marrow infiltration, which is I think what all of you guys are always afraid about when you see these things because the most common cause of bone marrow infiltration leading to pancytopenia is gonna be leukemia. <clears throat> so again, to just sort of summarize what we want you guys to be thinking about and doing when you're actually ordering these tests, because remember, when you order something, you wanna know what you're gonna do with it when you get those results. So first of all, make sure it's really abnormal. Um, So use pediatric and demographic specific reference ranges. If you guys are getting point of care tests in your office, we get a lot more variability with point of care testing. So please follow them up with um, lab tests, whether it be on your own or by calling us and having us do it. Make sure you interpret all of your available information. So a great example is people get CBCs and tend to ignore the red cell indices. So we get a lot of referrals for patients with presumed iron deficiency who do not have microcytosis. We get referrals for question thalassemia in patients who do not have microcytosis. Clinically, that doesn't fit, so make sure you're looking at all the values you have, and if you need help with it, pick up the phone and call us. Um, Thirdly, make sure you're interpreting um, lab results in the clinical context, and I think this gets back to what we were just saying. Is the patient sick? Is the patient well? You can see, obviously, we use some rather illustrative cases here, but you can tell, in general, you can put your patient into one of those buckets, sick versus not in terms of thinking at least how urgently you need to do something about the situation. And then looking for these red flags that we've been highlighting for you um, throughout the course of this talk. So what are the indications for referral? Thinking about whether multiple cell lines are effective. What's the severity of the abnormality? The hemoglobin of 10.9 in someone who might have a mild iron deficiency is very different than the kid who drinks a gallon of milk a day and has a hemoglobin of 2.8. Um, both iron deficiency, both very, very different. Um, You, again, want to be thinking about what other signs and symptoms they have. Are they things that are indicative of an inflammatory process? Are they things that are indicative of an underlying genetic condition, like growth failure, dysmorphic features? Um, and at the end of the day, please call us. I think this goes for all CCSG practices, but you know that you, if you are in the community or if you are a provider in another subspecialty, you can just pick up the phone and there's always someone who is assigned to answering phone calls. We triage the call based on what you guys tell us. Is it okay to call by the end of the day? Is it something that that you've got the patient sitting there in the office and you're trying to decide if you need to send them to the emergency department? They can interrupt us in the middle of a patient or have us call you within 15 minutes. And I think this will help with a lot of different things, again, that I think Heather alluded to at the beginning. Number one is for those patients who really don't have a primary hematologic problem, you can avoid unnecessary consultations. Again, we're always happy to take everyone, Mike would hate me for saying this because we'll lose revenue if, um, if people don't come and see us, but you can certainly avoid some consults if you have questions just by picking up the phone and calling us and also ensuring that any urgent referrals or consults are actually seen in a timely fashion. So more than once we've gotten consults by fax only for patients who had a new malignancy. And those are situations where just picking up the phone and giving us a heads up is really helpful too and we'll be able to triage Um, the urgency of the referral or tell you whether or not it's needed in the first place. Um, So I guess the moral is that we're here for you. That's all I got.